This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. Coral reefs are among the most beautiful and biologically diverse communities in the world. Yet, corals are in decline globally. Although some disease syndromes have been identified and described by researchers over the past few decades, many factors contributing to coral health and disease, both in the field and in aquaria, are still poorly understood. Dr. Michael Sweet, the lead researcher in the Coral Health and Disease Laboratory at the University of Derby, uses innovative techniques to better study coral health and disease and has helped bridge the gap between researchers and reef hobbyists. Join us as Dr. Sweet discusses coral health and disease, both in the field and in your home reef tank. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Michael Sweet, lead researcher in the Coral Health and Disease Laboratory at the University of Derby. Mike, thanks again for being with us today. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. I like to start the interviews with some kind of personal questions, you know, nothing too personal. But the first one, I, I like to find out a little bit more about your uh, kind of early life with Aquaria. How old were you when you got your first aquarium and do you remember anything about it? Well, I've got a little bit of a, a confession uh, to start off really early. I, I've never actually owned a, a marine aquarium. I did have a, a freshwater tropical tank when I was uh, younger and that was from about the age of five. And I guess that's part of uh, where the real interest being wanted to be a zoologist and a biologist came from. So in addition to that, then, how did you become interested in studying marine life and then in diseases of corals and other animals? Well, uh, originally I, I did zoology at university. I've, I've always been keen on studying wildlife um, in general and, and kept loads of pets like tortoises and dogs and horses. So I've always had that sort of interest throughout life. But I did zoology at, at university and that was up at Newcastle. But I started focusing more on, on terrestrial ecosystems. And I spent a good few years around the world struggling through rainforests and wading through rivers and foraging around uh, different plantations, oil palm plantations and things in Borneo, sticking my hands down random holes to try and find what was living there and just basically trying to uh, explore and and see uh, what was going on uh, with ecosystems. 
I was always a very keen diver as well. And this started during my university days. But I used to want to always keep diving as a hobby because it was always a very keen passion of mine. And then in around 2007, just by chance, I was looking for a slight change, a change of direction in job. And I stumbled across a PhD, which was looking at, at factors controlling the microbial communities of coral. And so I just jumped at the chance, basically. It was purely not focused in any way, just stumbled upon it and took on from there. Well, I'm really very glad you got into it. I know it sounds like you've been doing quite a bit and I'm, I'm excited to talk more about it. Can you briefly explain a little bit about your PhD research? Yeah, well, it's uh, as PhD researchers often are, it's, it's quite complex, but I'll, I'll try and uh, break it down a little bit. We split it up into, as you do with PhDs, kind of chapters or individual papers, but they all led on to each other. So I was focused on, on microbes, uh, so that's uh, bacteria, ciliates, viruses, and fungi. But the main interest was uh, started off on bacteria. And we explored a few different aspects. And one of the first things was looking at how they are actually associated with reefs as a whole and what factors are involved in controlling them. So there's, there's lots of different microbes associated with different diseases, um, and we'll look into that a little bit later. I'll, I'll give you some more explanations. But broadly assessing, we wanted to see what was there, first of all, a general biodiversity blitz of the environment. And as corals are surrounded by water, that was a logical place to look for. So we, we looked at the variation in bacteria in the water column. And this was over space and time. So space, I mean, different locations around a particular reef system. And time is obviously different months and different seasons. And here we found that a very interesting fact was changes in uh, productivity and this vertical diurnal, that's day-night migration of plankton was a greater effect on the bacterial communities in any one particular point in time rather than this whole large-scale water movement caused by tides. So it was completely the opposite of what we would have expected. So that started us thinking a little bit more. And then next we wanted to look into what was actually occurring on the coral. So I was very proud of this little aspect and we designed a, a novel device which we dubbed the snot sucker which was quite a fun term, and that was quite difficult to get that published, but they, uh, some of the reviewers seemed to like the name there, so that stuck. And this allowed us to separate the different coral into a variety of different compartments. So we had the skeleton, we had the tissue, and we had a variety of different mucus layers. And the coral gets a little bit complex at this stage, but we'll, we'll look into the anatomy of coral in a bit. But it also allowed us to show that the corals actually harbor these distinct microbial communities in these different compartments. So those found on the surface, for example, are very different than those found in the tissue even though everything's interconnected and linking. So we started to break up a little bit and we started to find some interesting factors. So we know what's in the water column and we know what's in the coral. The next logical step from that is to see what from the water column would actually settle on a coral. So this was another chapter and we moved uh, in that combination. But I wanted to start with a blank slate. And this meant I needed to have something which was a surface which was very replicable, so I could have hundreds of replicates, but also represented that of a coral. So I, I learned quite a lot from some art friends of mine and, and the modeling industry, and we designed some very detailed replicas, very similar to the stuff you get in your aquariums uh, of the fake corals, and we could microscopically replicate so that on a very small level, all the little coralites and the little crevices and the ditches associated with these uh, hard skeletinian corals, the, the big calcium carbonate corals, we could replicate all these minute little habitats which bacteria might settle in. So I did that with lots of different things and then I wanted to look at how to simulate the, the tissue or, and or the mucus associated with the coral. So we used a, a growth medium uh, known as agar and dipped these replicate corals in this agar, put them back out onto the reef and monitored over time what was settling from the water column onto this different surface. 
And then we could compare that directly to what was occurring to corals right adjacent to these replicates. And we managed to, to see that there was distinct differences between what's in the water column, what settles on this biofilm or these fake corals, and what happens to the corals in the real life. And that led us to conclude that the, the bacteria in the, in the surface mucus layer, which is a very dynamic layer of corals, is not the result of passive settlement from the water column. So the bacteria are not just simply settling on it and, and being either eaten or contained in, in a natural microflora. But the, the coral is actively selecting uh, for specific species. They're removing others and they're keeping hold of certain types. So that was, uh, again, uh, interesting and, and pushing us in this a very similar direction. So the next thing we, we challenged ourselves with was could we manipulate the corals themselves directly? So we've done it uh, experimentally, but it would be much better and, and easier to understand if we could use the coral and simulate this. And this was basically the start of, of most of my research after that because I used a, an antibiotic called ciprofloxacin, which could reduce the amount of bacteria in the coral itself without actually hurting the coral which is very important when you're thinking about treatments of disease and things like that. You want to make sure whatever you're doing is not actually affecting their, their coral health itself. And interestingly, this reduced over about 99% of the total bacteria, the abundance of bacteria in the coral. But when we looked at the diversity, it didn't really fluctuate too much, which was suggesting to us that the coral, again, can regulate its bacteria, its good bacteria, and ma maintain this level of uh, community profiling. So the coral was starting to become a, a very, even though it's a simplistic organism, it's, it works under lots of different complex systems. And then this is where it started getting more associated with disease because I started focusing on two diseases in particular, which was uh, white syndrome and brown band disease. And white syndrome is a very common disease occurring over the Indo-Pacific. Very characteristic because you get this sharp demarcation or the sharp line between the, the healthy tissue and the calcium, the exposed skeleton, the calcium carbonate skeleton. And then brown band disease is uh, very similar to that, but it has this uh, characteristic brown band caused by a ciliate, which is just a little bit uh, below the actual lesion itself. So we were looking at those two diseases, and, and brown band disease has always been associated with uh, ciliates before, and I didn't really know what they were. So I just thought I'd have a look down a microscope and see what these ciliates were. And then I saw lots of different species associated with it. And this was new. No one had really described the species there. And then I looked down at White Syndrome, some corals we were looking at there as well, and noticed that they had the same community. And then this started moving us towards profiling ciliate communities, which had never been studied before in, as far as coral disease is concerned. And the focus of the whole PhD kind of shifted uh, to attention towards that rather than the bacteria and that allowed us to write grants and, and produce more papers associated on that front. That's really pretty cool. Can you maybe for our, some of our listeners just uh, explain what a ciliate is real briefly? Yeah, a ciliate is a, a protozoan and these protozoans are single-celled organisms very similar to bacteria but they are thought to have evolved at a later stage and they have these uh, they're named because they have these very fine hair-like structures uh, associated around the outside um, and they're known as cilia and there's loads of different species of ciliates they're found all over every different system mostly marine and aquarium but you can also find them in quite a lot of terrestrial environments. I have to mention, too, that I probably could have used a snot sucker a lot of times, especially with my hay fever, but uh, we, we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, a, it's a useful tool to have. <laughs> so some folks are probably still confused about what a coral actually is. Can you give us a little anatomy and biology lesson on corals? 
Sure. Well, I work predominantly on stony corals. They're known, uh, they're called skeletinians, and their name comes from the stony aspect because of the calcium carbonate skeleton uh, they set. So if you actually look at a coral itself, uh, these ones which form the Great Barrier Reef and found around the Maldives and all throughout the Caribbean as well, most of the actual coral you're seeing is actually just this skeleton, this hard white calcium carbonate. And the actual tissue around the corals is very, very thin, uh, microscopic even. And it just covers the thin top layer of what the actual coral is. And this tissue layer consists of, of two different parts. It's got a plant part and an animal part. The animal part is very similar to what you'll have seen in, in anemones. I'm sure most of your, your listeners will have been to rock pools and things like that. And you can see these fleshy anemones which don't seem to have any skeletal structure. And they use something called a hydrostatic skeleton, which is where they use the water to basically give them the structure and the movement they need to catch prey. And this animal part of the coral feeds on, on anything uh, floating around in the water column. It, it does something called heterotrophic feeding. And it's an important aspect of the coral itself. In fact, that's pretty much the main part of the coral. However, with skeletinians, to lay down this calcium carbonate skeleton, it's very energy consuming and they need a little help. So they have this plant aspect, which are the cymbididium. They're more commonly known as zooxanthellae, and it's basically uh, very similar to the chloroplast of plants. So they take the energy from the light, uh, they do photosynthesis, and this combination of heterotrophic feeding from the actual animal part of the coral and the algal symbiont allows them to live in these heterotrophic waters. So they're kind of a combination plant and animal. Yeah, it's, it's quite rare to find these sort of things, but if you start looking a little bit deeper, things like giant clams where you can see these vibrant images of, of clams and the big colours and a lot of nudibranchs as well, the little slug type things you'll quite often find in your aquarium as well. All these have this type of symbiosis as well. So what are the major requirements for keeping corals happy and healthy in an aquarium? Well, um, as I've already said, uh, not having my own aquarium until very recently where I started having a, a research aquarium, I'm not really the best one to talk to you about this one. But from the experience, I, I work a lot with public aquariums and the reefs themselves. Um, it's all about getting the right balance. And in that, I mean the, the temperature, obviously, is very important. The light levels, uh, flow rates are really an important aspect. Uh, level of nutrients, pH, oxygen content, all vital for corals to be healthy and, and grow. And if you're lucky, uh, even spawn. Another interesting thing as well, which I, I think in certain instances is, is often neglected, is a good feeding regime. Uh, so depending on the type of corals you have, giving them a good and varied food source will make sure that you're giving them that extra helping hand and maintain your healthy system. So what are some of the major coral types? Well, uh, this is where the, the slight differences uh, in, in names comes from. As far as researchers are concerned, we use mainly either the, the broad descriptions talking about uh, growth patterns such as plating, branching, massive, um, or more commonly we use the Latin names. So uh, particularly we focus on the genus, things like Acroporas, Parites, Pocilloporas, um, and there's a whole heap of different species, hundreds and hundreds in fact in the Indo-Pacific. And identifying corals past genus, uh, as far as a researcher is concerned, is really quite tricky. And it might be the fact that only a handful of researchers or scientists around the world would be able to do this sort of thing to a reliable status. And something which I also work on uh, quite a lot is molecular sequencing or genetic typing, if you will. And this is where taxonomy of corals in general and taxonomy of many different organisms is actually getting really confusing because when we sequence and get a, a whole genome or a whole sequence of the different coral species, we're actually finding that some we thought were completely different than each other are actually similar and some we thought which were the same species might be separating out into two different species. So it's opening up a whole new can of worms 
but names which your your listeners would probably be more familiar with are things like LPS corals. They're the large polyp stony corals, and SPS, the small polyp stonies. And these two particularly fit into the, the skeletinian corals, the ones I work with quite a lot, which are putting down this calcium carbonate skeleton. Then you have things like the zooanthids, which are your button polyps, your mushroom corals, and other soft corals, uh, which fit into uh, gorgonians as well. If you're lucky to have a huge aquarium, you might be able to squeeze in a, a nice sea fan there. And these also include leather corals and pipe organ corals, uh, which are soft-bodied. And, and the difference there is they don't produce this calcium carbonate skeleton quite a few. Would you say that you have any favorites? Ah, favorite corals. Yeah, it's a bit of a difficult one. I, I just like everything in general. I, I'm very much on the ecosystem scale of things. It's the same with all the, the fluffy animals as well. But I quite like bubble corals like Plerogyra. They're, they're pretty amazing things. And also the brightly colored ones are, are obviously a, a winner. Cataphilia, for example, is very beautiful and very vibrant colors. So let's talk a little bit now about disease. What makes corals so susceptible to disease? This is quite interesting. We have to kind of take a few steps back because you've got, you've got to remember that these reefs have developed in very nutrient-poor environments. This is where oligotrophic aspect comes into it. So it's an area of huge diversity, which is basically formed from nothing. So these big ocean currents are, are not actually bringing in a huge amount of food source. So the corals have adapted to this by using this symbiotic strategy that most of the, the reef-building corals, that is. Obviously, we get deep corals off the coast of America and the UK as well, and they don't have symbiotic algae associated with them, and they're just white. But that, that's a, a different story, really. But as far as the, the reef building corals, which uh, most people presume, or most people take as the general coral, they're living right on their threshold of tolerance. And this is really interesting because most organisms live well below their threshold. They like to live in a, in a comfortable environment, but for some reason, corals like to be on the extreme side. And it's because of this, because they're maybe one or two degrees shy of complete catastrophe as far as temperature is concerned, for example, any variation of the norm or a stress event, as they're, they're often called, will just tip them over the edge. So as far as diseases are concerned, all corals start with any particular stress event. And this can be anything. This can be increase in nutrients, increase or decrease in temperature, hot and cold, sedimentation, pollution, physical damage, predation from coral-eating organisms, things like acropora-eating flatworms and different snail species from the genus Trufelia. Or if you're really unlucky and you have one of these in your, your tank, which would be quite cool, a, a big crown of thorn starfish coming in and eating all your acroporids. So any of those aspects all start off uh, a sort of damage to the coral and make it more vulnerable to contraction by any disease. And what we're seeing now is that all these events will probably happen naturally to some events and, and the corals evolved with these different stress events. But the major thing we're seeing now is that these are piling up on top of each other. They're occurring more and more frequently. So the corals are just recovering from one and then they get hit by a crown of thorn starfish outbreak, for example, which is what's going on in the Great Barrier Reef at the moment. Wow, well, so there's definitely a lot going on. I, I want to talk, obviously, a little bit more about disease, and we will do so after a short break. So let's take a short break and continue our coral conversation with Dr. Michael Sweet of the University of Derby. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. 
If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Michael Sweet of the University of Derby. So, Mike, you talked a lot about some of the potential factors that can cause disease. Are some corals more susceptible to diseases than others? Yeah, it's a, a very interesting question and it's something which researchers are, are basically just starting to, to get to grips with it and start to understand. In fact, more often than not, the actual information on there is not available to the general public because we're still trying to research this and trying to fully understand it. And what's coming more and more prevalent is that it's definitely going to be something to do with the genetics of the coral. So gene research is, has only started taking off since the late 90s but started to become affordable around now and it means more and more researchers can use these techniques to see why a particular coral from site A can survive something like bleaching, for example, whilst the same coral species from site B can't. But if we put genes aside a little bit and save that for a future conversation, to simply put, it's kind of the general consensus is that the faster growing species, these are the things like the acroporas and the postoloporas, the branching corals or the plating corals, uh, they appear to be in general more vulnerable to things like bleaching and disease than the slower growing ones. And that's because they're, the slower growing ones, these massive corals, these parites, for example, appear to just be tougher in general. However, that said, so you get one colony of the same species, take Acropora muricata, which is uh, one of the most dominant reef builders in, in the GBR, and that will bleach. And then right next to it, you'll have another colony, which uh, is perfectly healthy. And obviously, they're under the same stress events. They're in the same water, which is the same temperature. And that's the area which we really need to understand. As far as bleaching is concerned, this is where the symbionts, these zooxanthellae, might be playing a very important role. And it wasn't until the 1990s where people started understanding that there wasn't just one species of algal symbiont associated with corals, but there were loads of different ones. And these were termed clades. And now researchers are looking into whether these clades are temperature tolerant. So you might have some clades which are better at surviving higher temperatures than others. But often is the case, and what the researchers have found so far, is that there's a trade-off. If a clade is more temperature tolerant, it's usually not as good as acquiring the energy which the coral needs. So the coral has to be slower growing, it doesn't reproduce as well or as efficiently, but it can survive a bit longer in higher temperatures. So going back to um, the whys, and, and I know it's, as you mentioned, probably going to be really difficult, but what makes causes of coral disease so difficult to determine? Well, something which is kind of battered around quite a lot, and some of your listeners might have heard about it, is something called Henley's Cox postulates. And this is a, a bit of a complex microbiological to really describe, but I'll try and simplify it a little bit. And it's the kind of standard method utilized to describe diseases in all organisms. However, when it was developed a long, long time ago, it was developed mainly for terrestrial systems. Things like tuberculosis uh, was one of the first diseases where it was implified or utilized for. But simply put, the aim is to, first of all, identify which microbes are associated with diseased individuals and not in healthy. That gives you a candidate list of potential pathogens. So we're looking on a, as far as microbial pathogens are concerned in this instance. The next step is you need to actually culture these microbes up. 
then you need to inoculate a healthy individual and try and uh, replicate the same disease you saw in nature. So it sounds relatively simple, and I hope you agree, <laughs> but it does provide quite a few challenges, particularly in the marine environment. The first main challenge of this is that what we're finding out now, just with descriptive studies, and I work on quite a lot of those, is that we're not looking for a single pathogen, and we're actually looking at multiple causal agents. So that could be multiple species of bacteria, or it could be things like bacteria, ciliates, viruses, and fungi, or any combination thereof. So it starts to get really complex. The second one is trying to culture up the specific pathogen you're aiming for. So you've identified it because it's present in the disease tissue but absent in your healthy, so that's your candidate, and now you need to culture that up. Traditional culture methods where you plate them out onto different growth mediums only culture up about less than 30% of marine microbes, known microbes. So that means 70 to 99% of these microbes are unculturable. So we're looking for a needle in a haystack, which we can't actually find. The third and final one, is that the inoculation is difficult in itself and obviously causes an additional stress and to account for that it's quite tricky. And then when you're trying to match that disease, if you've managed to somehow miraculously get past all those and cause some form of disease, relating the aquarium disease or the disease you've managed to occur in your controlled environment is very difficult to put that onto the same one which you saw in the reef to start off with. So any number of those different challenges can stop a researcher from figuring out what's actually going on. So, even going back further, how can you tell if a coral is sick? Well, corals are, are relatively simple organisms. As far as uh, the animal kingdom is concerned, other than uh, periphera, which are the sponges, the, the phylum where corals are from, cnidarian, are, are one of the first branching off in the evolution of life. So they are thought to be relatively simplistic. And from that, they can only show you a variety of different ways in which they are sick. So a handful of ways, and that's discoloration of the tissue, lack of extension of the tentacles in, in LPS corals, for example. But more commonly, it's the, the characteristic loss of tissue from the colony. In this instance, you get a handful of different pathologies, and we coral researchers have been very innovative with the diseases of the names, and these go from things like black band disease, which is characteristic of a black band, yellow band disease, which is characteristic of a yellow band. Are you seeing a variation of the theme here? And one of the biggest ones is, is white syndrome. And white syndrome is, again, a, a very difficult term to really come to terms with, and different researchers utilize it for different things, and it causes any number of issues when you're trying to write papers on this. But it's simply where a sharp demarcation occurs between a healthy tissue and the exposed skeleton. So numerous things could potentially cause this, but as far as a disease is concerned and as far as a symptom is concerned, that's what it looks like. Well, it's not actually a symptom because a coral can't tell you what's wrong with it, so it's more a disease sign. So that's another different definition you have to get involved with. If the corals could tell us what was wrong, it would be much easier. You're not a coral whisperer yet. Not quite, yeah. It's a trick I'm, I'm trying to master, but they seem to be a little bit secretive. So how about fighting disease then? Do corals have the ability to fight disease or do they have some sort of immune system? Yeah, that's, that's another a great question. Uh, although they're quite simple organisms, as I've said, they do have actually quite complex immune systems. And I don't want to bore you in this aspect because it, there is actually a fair amount of research associated with this. And it, again, it goes down to the uh, specific gene pathways and how they influence different immunity. But if we simplify it out a little bit more, we can think about things like antimicrobial capabilities of the coral. And that can be split into two different aspects, the actual coral tissue itself, 
has antimicrobial capabilities, so it can fight off nasty bacteria, for example. But also, it has a, a natural community of bacteria, very similar to our, our gut microflora, which keeps us healthy in, in a good way. So these also produce their own antimicrobial defenses and prevent out competition from the bad bacteria. So the good bacteria on corals uh, plays a very important role. But as we've already touched on, the, the corals have this huge amount of snot. If you, I'm sure your, your listeners will have seen this when they're handling their corals or moving them from tank to tank, and you produce this very stinky, gelatinous stuff. And it's basically the same thing which comes out of your nose. And we argue that it's uh, kind of a first line of defense for most corals. And whatever gets trapped in it, they can either eat tasty morsel or they can get rid of quite quickly because it's a very dynamic layer, this mucus layer. And quite often if you're snorkeling on reefs, you'll see big mats of mucus floating on the surface. And that's a, a normal thing and, and that's just the coral having a good way of, of getting rid and clearing any biofouling organisms. It includes things like barnacles trying to settle on the corals. The barnacle larvae, for the most part, will have actually just be taken up by the mucus and shifted off. And also things like sand and any other irritation. Finally, they also have their specialized stinging cells as well. Uh, these are called nematocysts. And this is what makes the coral phylum Nidaria, akin to jellyfish as well, unique because they're one of the, well, they are the only phylum which have these cells. And it's thought to actually be one of the fastest cellular processes. The firing of the nematocyst is the fastest cellular process in the whole animal kingdom. Now, you mentioned it, I think, uh, briefly earlier, but just for, uh, for clarification, can you give us the difference between a disease and a syndrome? Yeah, sure. Well, that's quite a, a good one. So, uh, strictly speaking, all coral diseases are actually syndromes. And the, the reason why is because syndromes are when you don't actually know the causal agent. And depending on who you talk to, coral biologist-wise, and the papers you read will depend on how many people say how many different diseases have had a causal agent linked to them. However, if you start reading a bit deeper, you'll notice that there's always controversy and there's always uh, variation for the same disease caused by multiple different pathogens or some researchers trying to replicate an experiment which was done in the 80s, 90s and having no success. So you can, in theory, argue that no one actually knows what causes any particular disease. So even though we've been working on it as a community for over 40 years, the detail we understand of, of marine diseases as a whole, as coral diseases, is actually very limited. So it, it becomes a disease once you officially know what causes it. So I've tried to do a lot of work on these specific causal agents as well. And in some cases, uh, I've worked on the same disease, or in abbreviated commas, or syndrome as, as the real term should be, from different countries, um, or even aquariums as well. I do a lot of work using public aquaria, and I found very different results. So that can tell us one of two things, and it depends on how you interpret your results here, that what we're looking at, even though it looks the same, so it could be white syndrome, is either a completely new disease for those two different samples we've looked at, but it's showing a similar pathology, or what's more likely is that the disease in question can be caused by multiple pathogens or combinations thereof, and we start associating it with that. So if we describe the actual pathology as the specific disease, then we can have multiple causal agents. Now that's quite hard for quite a few people to stomach because everybody wants that smoking gun. Everybody wants to find that killer pathogen, uh, that killer coral of corals in the, in the Great Barrier Reef or something like that. But in science and, and in nature, that's very rarely the case. And I think that goes to a good point, which is many folks on the hobby side want one type of appearance of disease to be caused by the same thing with regard to maybe trying to manage it. So that's a great point. Let's start with one of the 
more basic diseases then, talk a little bit about coral bleaching and potential causes. Yeah, well, interesting that you started uh, saying it's a, a basic disease as well, because some people, some uh, researchers would not class coral bleaching as a disease. But if we think of back to the definition of what a disease is, it's uh, any variation of the norm. So coral bleaching does fit quite nicely into what diseases are. So bleaching is commonly thrown around as a major cause, cause of loss of corals around the world, both in the wild system, but also you, you notice it in, in aquariums. And what this is, basically, it's the whitening of the coral. So you can actually see through the coral tissue and you can see this white calcium carbonate skeleton. And that's what's happened is you've got the algal symbionts are actually expelled at this stage. So instead of being a useful partner in the process of growing and reproducing, they actually become a hindrance and the coral simply just gets rid of it. How the coral actually gets rid of it is still very much in debate, but there's numerous different mechanisms where they think they can either do cell apoptosis, which is uh, what's called programmed cell death. The actual cells might become necrotic and then expelled from the tissue. But how they actually do it, it's there most likely appears to be multiple different ways that a coral can get rid of its symbionts. But interestingly, this bleaching is, has been happening since corals uh, first formed their symbiosis, back way during the time when they were evolving in the Cambrian period, for example. And it's part of this animal-plant symbiosis. But like we've already touched on, it's what's happening now is that these bleaching events are occurring more and more frequently. And it's termed something called mass bleaching, where instead of you might have just seen a few coral species turning paper white when you go for a snorkel, you now see entire reef tracks or pristine white or sometimes a little bit pinky purple as well, depending on the coral species. And instead of this happening, maybe one every hundred years. So again, mass bleaching events probably were a regular occurrence, although it's difficult to look back in the fossil record for bleaching and disease instances. And now we're seeing them every 10 years. So a big one was in 1998, another one in 2010. And then what's happening now is that we might actually start seeing them every year instead of every 10 years. A good case in point is in the Maldives, for example. In 1998, El Nino came in, and that's a big storm front which carries with it warm waters. Uh, warm sea surface temperatures and the reefs there in the Maldives were hit hard because this El Nino hovered over the Maldives for a lengthy period of time a good few months and the corals were out of their comfort zone expelled their zooxanthellae and then if temperatures go back to normal they can recover and they can live happily ever after but if they're still in this stressed state for months and months and months they become very stressed and susceptible to different types of things and that's where the other diseases come into it and the Maldives actually lost the total 90% of its total coral cover staggering number and now we're only starting to see that recovery just in time for the next El Nino which is due to hit in January what effects this next one will have only time will tell but it's certainly a concern on my part yeah, it definitely does sound troublesome. Can you explain what a growth anomaly is and what are possible causes of that? Yeah, that's, it seems to get a lot less attention in the scientific community, these growth anomalies. And they're very interesting. And I've only started looking into them really last year. We just actually wrote a, a paper on it, which is available in PLOS One. And that was looking at a soft blister formation in, in echinopora corals. We didn't actually get to the causal agent yet, but we did show that there wasn't any microbial causal agents, so we managed to eliminate those. And the chances are, as with the same as hard growth anomalies as well, which you find on things like tabulid corals, where you just see a kind of white bulbous nodge coming out. These are more like tumours, very similar to a cancer, if you will. And the likelihood is it's just unregulated growth of the cells associated with the coral tissue for no particular 
reason other than some individuals get these abnormal growths and it's likely that these types of syndromes are actually quite normal in a population and you wouldn't really expect incidences of these to increase over any particular time period because I don't think it's really associated with things like climate change or, or poor conditions in your aquarium for example. So now the big hobbyist question, are coral diseases in captive environments, and as you mentioned, there's been a lot of work, although maybe some questions still about causes, but are those diseases in the uh, wild going to be similar or different with regard to diseases in public aquaria or hobbyist tanks? Yeah, strangely enough, you picked up on this question because uh, I asked myself this as well not too recent ago. And for some reason, when I looked into it, very few researchers had actually tried to see if there were any similarities or differences. We all know the problems associated with trying to link our disease in aquariums, but not in compared to the wild. And pretty much every coral researcher works in aquariums as well, even though they, they might not really think of it in that aspect, because all our controlled experiments are done in aquariums, even if we're on the reef itself. And in some instances, there are quite clear matches, things like the white syndrome. So I'm sure most of your listeners will have seen this sharp demarcation between the healthy tissue and the, and the coral skeleton itself. Uh, things like black band disease, it's relatively rare in the aquarium, but it's also interestingly quite rare in the reefs as well, but it's persistent. So if you get it, you're usually going to have it associated with different corals in your system. And then you get some quite striking differences like brown band disease in the wild and brown jelly syndrome in the aquarium. So as far as I'm aware, I've never really seen a, a coral which looks like it's got brown band disease in an aquarium or brown jelly syndrome in the wild. However, in both cases, they're actually caused or thought to be caused by the same pathogen, which is a ciliate called Philastoguamensis. And this is the, if you take off a little bit of tissue from both diseases, you'll see heaps of these little ciliates swimming around. And the general consensus at the moment is that they play a very important role in the diseases of both instances, but the actual pathology is very different. In my opinion, I believe these different pathologies are, are down to the systems, you see. So it's obvious that hobbyists and curators try to replicate the reef environment as best they can. But there are undoubtedly going to be many different obstacles which they can't always accommodate for. This is things like the different fish species you have in your systems, other invertebrates, things like crabs, which have been shown to feed off these ciliates, for example. Wave action is something which is, is usually restricted or very difficult in a controlled aquarium. Things like currents and flow rates all play some role in the, the overall pathology. So it's, it's not really unexpected to see different diseases in these two different systems because they are actually quite different. So now the billion dollar question, I know this is a loaded one, but can any of these diseases or syndromes be treated successfully in a captive environment? Yeah, well, th this is the golden nugget. This is what everybody wants. And it's not just the hobbyists who want to do this. It's also uh, very important for researchers. And in fact, we wrote a paper recently on white band disease in the Caribbean where we actually used some stuff we did with aquariums and implemented it into the wild to try and highlight some of these issues associated with Cox postulates. If we back up to the question of what's the, the easiest way to try and save your corals, the best thing is probably just to fragment them. And, and I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard this. Corals are relatively easy to grow in a healthy environment. And if you can just fragment the healthy part, usually about a, a good centimeter above the actual lesion interface, because what researchers have, uh, have also found is that the disease often progresses in advance of the actual lesion itself. So whenever you're fragging, do frag a good distance away from the infected part of the coral just to make sure that your new frag doesn't get it. Again, if we back up even further, the first question is to, to try and understand why your, your coral got sick. 
And so have a look at your environmental parameters, try and correct whatever is off. And if you can do all that, then the corals are actually quite resilient and they can recover. We did a, a recent paper with the Horniman Museum and Gardens, who have a very good research unit, and they had two corals which were dying off of a disease, and we simply put them into a better environment, a more controlled tank system, where we could manage them and monitor them a little bit better, and on their own, they just recovered perfectly healthy. So if you have the luxury of, of being able to have maybe a different tank where you can control the environments a little bit better, a smaller one, just allowing the corals to, to fight off the diseases themselves is not too impossible a task. But I mentioned briefly that we've done this recent study in the Caribbean on white band, and here we utilized different antibiotics to cure the corals. So we did it for a different reason. We wanted to try and knock out the pathogens so we could understand the different roles of these different causal agents. But as an offsite of that, it actually meant we did actually cure the corals in our aquarium settings. And here we use two different antibiotics, paramycin sulfate and ampicillin. Both are quite regularly available, and in most cases it, it cured the disease outright. However, at this stage, I will say that I don't advocate the, the outright use of antibiotics all over the place because you, you've got to do it in a safe way. I think it's ideal for aquarium systems, but just as long as you take care of, of what you do with your wastewater. Because it's a, an interesting aspect which many people don't think about. It's the same as when you take a, an antibiotic orally and then you go to the toilet. Most of the actual antibiotic capabilities are going through and out into the sewage system and what we're producing is superbugs these same bacteria we're trying to fight off are becoming resistant to the antibiotics we use on a regular basis so if every hobbyist in the world utilized ampicillin for example to treat their corals it would only take a short period of time for the specific pathogens associated with that disease to gain the resistance and they would stop working and everybody will come shouting at me saying that it doesn't work anymore <laughs> That's the point. So it sounds like us trying to maintain a very good environment. And, you know, you mentioned fragging is probably good options. Um, you know, not that antibiotics aren't potentially an option, but, but you know, to try to look at the big picture first. Yep. So now I know you've done a lot and are really engaged in working with the hobbyists as well. Can you explain how hobbyists and researchers can help each other and, and give us a few examples? Yeah, well, this was something I was very keen of, and it's something which we all, as researchers ourselves, need to get to grips with a little bit more. And if you ever produce grant applications and gain PhD students and master students, it's all about impact. How is your research actually going to impact the general public or, or the, the wider world? And people want to see this. So back in the day, researchers could just do their work. They file their results in, in the papers, and, and no one would ever read them. But people have got wise to this, and obviously we want to start using this to give some practical gain. So I started working uh, back in, it would have been about 2009, I started working with the ZSL, which is the Zoological Society of London, and the Horniman Museum and Gardens. And they're two big public aquariums in London, and that was where a lot of my collaboration with, as far as aquariums was concerned, started off. And they've got such a valuable resource, which researchers don't understand. They work with corals 24-7. Whilst I sit in, in my desk in the UK, typing up papers and writing research grants, I'm not playing with the corals all the time. So the information they gain on a daily basis is such a valuable tool that it's a shame to ignore that. But it, it does come with its own problems. And it's the same with uh, talking to people on blog sites and other hobbyists and things. Again, a huge value of information. But to try and get through all that information and come to something which we can utilize. And th this whole thing is called the grey literature. 
And I wrote a paper relatively recently which was trying to suggest researchers needed to tap in on this a little bit more and work together. And we've done a few workshops where we've had hobbyists come down and, and quite often people contact me, like yourself for example, to talk and start developing this. So a few years ago I set up a website, uh, very simple, and it was aimed at disseminating the knowledge we researchers get and any recent papers and things like that into quite a, hopefully, a user-friendly output method. It's just called Aquarium coraldiseases.weebly.com. It was a roaring success. Many people used it. A lot of people contacted me from it, asking me different questions. And it's always, it's a dynamic website. The aim is to always update it whenever anything new comes out. And the main aim of that is to try and bring together these two different groups, these people who are, are paid to research and work on the corals and the people who love the corals and have them in their homes. You're also interested in some of the starfish issues going on around America? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's something I, I'm keen to start tackling at the moment. Um, I don't know how many people know about it. It's been in the news quite a lot. And it's uh, a lot of starfish deaths occurring off both coasts of America. And um, it's called starfish wasting disease. And a few of my aquarium collaborators in the UK and, and also in America have said that a similar disease has been occurring in aquarium systems for years. They've noticed that their starfish just suddenly start to rot off. So how you tell it is they might lose an arm. It starts to go a little bit white. And it basically, the whole starfish just disappears eventually. There are researchers currently trying to tackle this issue at the moment. However, as far as I'm aware, no one's really figured out what's going on. And in instances like that, it can be really useful when uh, hobbyists, for example, can contact me, tell me they've got a starfish dying, for example, or, or pretty much any organism dying. And I can take a sample of it, try and figure out what's going on. And we do it in such a, a systematic way that more often than not, we can publish these results because we've got replicates from different tanks and we can really figure out what's going up. That's excellent. That's a really uh, great kind of collaboration that you're you're advocating. And yeah, I agree. I think uh, we can get a lot from hobbyists working with the researchers and you know, vice versa. Can you tell us a little bit, we're kind of coming to a close here, but can you tell us about Reef Conservation UK? Yeah, RCUK, as it's uh, shortened to, is just a, a small national conference which is held in, in the Zoological Society of London each year. Um, it's usually the first weekend of December, and it's an amazing conference. It's one of my favorite ones. I've gone to lots of different international ones and national ones, and it's such a friendly feeling. Everybody loves working together, and it's such a nice atmosphere to be in. But it's not just for researchers. A lot of the general public come along as well, and a lot of hobbyists, uh, particularly those around London, but hopefully more and more and more people will come and it's through this conference that actually many of my collaborations as far as aquariums started off and it's something I like to to try and give back as I'm actually trying to uh, help run it this year as well. So there's a whole team who run it, mostly organized by the people at ZSL, but they rely on, on bits of help from other people. So I highly recommend people to go if you're around in the in the area. Uh, so it's the first week of December and you can learn everything from work being conducted on deep sea corals. Uh, these are lophilia. These are white corals found in real depths where humans can't go and they have to take submersibles down off the coast of Scotland, for example, to how Project Seahorse can help conserve seahorses and a whole wide scope of different projects which are going on associated with reefs as a whole. Yeah, that does sound really fascinating. Um, hopefully uh, one day maybe I can... Uh make it over there too. So um, do you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners? 
just that if you do know any researchers who are out there, just contact them. Us researchers aren't a, a scary bunch of people. We're, we're not all old professors sat in our wing-back chairs. We like to get involved. We love hearing from you guys and quite often uh, starts friendships, not only collaborations, which will last a lifetime. So pick up a phone, send an email to anybody you, you see on the internet or you, you hear speaking or something like that, and you never know where it could go. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I really appreciate giving us your time, Mike, and I want to thank you very much. Also, I'd like to thank our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Please be sure to check out Dr. Michael Sweet's Aquarium Coral Diseases website. We'll have the link on Dr. Sweet's Aquarium Mania bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. We'll try to get some pictures, if possible, from this episode, and also you can ask questions or make comments. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, keep your tanks clean and your fish and corals healthy. Please visit your local aquarium stores and be sure to check out Dr. Sweet's Coral Disease website. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.